0: when things go wrong we sometimes blame others at other times we decide that there is something inherently wrong with us and hence that is why we will never become successful but what if I tell you that each one of us has a unique unfair advantage leveraging which will make us successful. Actually rather than me telling you about your unfair advantage and how to leverage it, why don't we speak to a couple of gifted entrepreneurs who have tons of related experience and expertise. Our guests today are Ash Ali and Hassan Koba who are startup entrepreneurs and the co-authors of an upcoming book, called the unfair advantage born to immigrant parents there was crime and poverty all around ash in birmingham plus he didn't go to a university either but ash became the first marketing director of just eat an online food order and delivery startup and his growth hacking and marketing skills were instrumental in growing Just Eat, which IPO'd at £1.5 billion. Hassan built a successful startup from his bedroom with nothing more than an online course and a yearning to escape the corporate rat race. They have each spoken at TEDx, advised and mentored hundreds of startups all over the world and they are both passionate about spreading the opportunities of startup entrepreneurship. So let's speak to our guests. You're the
1: average of the five podcast shows you listen to the most. (laughs) Learn to run your business well with the SIA Business Show, where our host Sayyad Arfa Najmal interviews entrepreneurs, marketers and speakers of all colors and creeds, revealing their biggest secrets and lousiest mistakes.
0: Ash and Hassan welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Hello. How are you both and where in the world are you both located at?
2: So I'm currently in northwest London in Edgware.
1: Yeah and I'm in northwest London as well.
0: Right so before we discuss the book and the philosophy that it comes with I would like to know what was life like for both of you. What about you Ash? What is it that you were doing before you authored this book?
2: So I've been in the entrepreneurial trenches for most of my life, actually. I started my first website when I was 19 years old. So I've been uh, building websites and been in the digital industry for about 20 years now. And the book came about after going on stage and speaking about my learnings and stories of starting startups and growing them.
0: Perfect. Sounds good. And what about you, Hassan?
1: So, yeah, I, I, I was born in Baghdad, first of all. I moved to London when I was three years old with my family. And then um, my path was that typical kind of immigrant path. They don't want to take risks. They want you to be a doctor or an engineer. That's not a typical kind of Iraqi parents thinking. I was on the path to becoming a doctor. I dropped out of university, realized it wasn't for me. And later down the line, I started my own online business. And I grew that to the point where I was making passive income. It was great. And yeah, it was that success, that initial success in my own business, which kind of made me interested in investing in startups and looking at success.
0: Sounds very interesting. And was that startup focused on online education?
1: It was a digital marketing agency, actually.
0: Right, right. Okay.
1: with local clients here in London.
0: Perfect. You also mentioned that you've worked on an online course, right? So I just wanted to know a bit more about that, if possible.
1: Yeah, no, I took, so that's how I started, is I actually took an online course. I finished an economics degree after I got out of medicine. And kind of the typical path is sort of banking and or working in the city or in finance. But that, that didn't really appeal to me, side. So what I did instead is I, I, I found an online course about starting your own online business. And it was from that that I learned all this stuff. I was too scared to start. I got some sales built in the city in the meantime. But then eventually I, I went for it.
0: Right. It's amazing how, despite the fact that a lot of parents, especially, you know, parents who are from Asia, I believe. So we had guests from Malaysia, Singapore as well, you know, who had their parents sort of forcing them or pressuring them to, uh, you know, go down that traditional route. And it's interesting how, you know, someone like you ditched university and, you know, actually learned much more via an online course, right?
1: Yeah, Yeah, it's definitely, it's a funny thing, that yeah, all all Asian parents, it seems. I mean, I can understand where they're coming from. You know, they want that stability, that security. That's all they know about, you know, these kinds of entrepreneurial opportunities didn't really exist before, you know, that kind of 20th century thinking of getting a secure job, nice profession, you know, and getting the stability from there. It's kind of understandable, but, you know, times change.
0: Yeah, yeah. And Ash, I know that before you joined Just Eat, you were one of the earliest employees there. And of course, you were the first marketing director there. I believe you also had some entrepreneurial strengths, right? So what was that like? And what made you decide to, you know, have a corporate career of sorts at Just Eat?
2: Yeah, so my initial idea of being an entrepreneur was when I was 13 years old and I did a newspaper round. And then I started selling CDs at 16. And I had it in my blood to be an entrepreneur naturally and try and make money. And money for me meant freedom and choices and options. And then when I was 19, I built this website and that was quite interesting. And I won a couple of awards for it and moved to London. And when I moved to London, I actually joined a corporate, a corporate company. And that corporate company gave me a great foundation and setting to learn about how you do things in an office environment with other people and working teams. Because when you're an entrepreneur, you normally work with freelancers and you're solo, or you have one partner. And it's very different when you're working with bigger teams and bigger clients and different stakeholders. And so I learned a lot about office politics, life, in uh, working in an office, working in a team, working with corporate clients, and also the ability to have impact. So the reason why I joined Just Deep was that there's going to be impact. We're going to go nationwide with Mm -hmm. a startup and also Europe-wide. And that really excited me. And it was something completely different because everyone else was nodding their head and saying, Nobody's going to order takeaways online. And I always kind of do, do the opposite of what everyone else is saying. And I've done that as a child as well. My parents keep saying it. They, you know, Everyone's working one way and you're working the other way. <laughs> and I st- tended to do that with Just Eat as well.
0: I mean, I think that's a very good point that you raise. Do you think that we entrepreneurs, we are kind of suspicious of the consensus and the, whatever the majority is doing or thinking?
2: I, I don't think it's being suspicious of them. I think it's uh, we are finding gaps in the marketplace and being contrarian. And there's always gonna be a different way to do something. And perspective Mm -hmm. is very important. Yeah. So what happens is when you're in the corporate office world or when you go through education, you're taught to think in a certain way and pattern, and you try and do a lot more pattern recognition. Whereas when you're outside of that, your pattern recognition changes to your perspective. And that's why it's becoming more and more important in larger Mm -hmm. organizations and firms to have diversity at the top of the, in the leadership teams. Because it's very important to have different perspectives.
1: Just to add to that side, I really think sure. that it's a kind of an, a being a nonconformist. There is, There's definitely a correlation between nonconformist and being an entrepreneur.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's, it seems that with all the entrepreneurs and their weird but interesting quirks and their amazing products and everything. So I know that you guys quote even Spiegel quite often in, in some of your talks when he mentioned that, you know, I'm a young, white, educated male. I got really, really lucky and life isn't fair. So, I mean, is that what an unfair advantage looks like? And does that mean that there is no hope for the others who are not, you know, young or white or educated?
1: Yeah, good question. Let me touch on this because this is something that I kind of researched myself. You know, it was, a, it was a really good kind of starting point or a really simple way to explain unfair advantages, you know, right from the horse's mouth of Forbes's youngest self made billionaire at the time, you know. The answer is, is this what unfair advantage looks like? It's what an unfair advantage can look like. But there are so many different ways it can manifest itself. So that's like the kind of straightforward, typical example of an unfair advantage. But it doesn't mean that's the only way an unfair advantage can exist. So unfair advantages can have double-edged swords. That's one of the big points that we make in the book. Otherwise, it's a very demotivational thing if you're not born young, white and rich, really it's it's more about what do you have in your circumstances or your personality or your talents that's giving you an edge over the competition sort of naturally right so it's a case of sometimes you can turn what seems to be a disadvantage into an advantage if you have the right mindset so it's a good example of one but another example of an unfair advantage is Oprah Winfrey. We use her as a big case study in the book so Oprah as I'm sure everybody who's listened to this has heard how massively, massively successful she is, Oprah Winfrey. She's a self made billionaire as well, one of the, uh, I think, one of the richest black women in the world. There's something along those lines. And her background is very, very underprivileged. But her unfair advantage was her talent at speaking and reading and doing public speaking and speaking to an audience. So she kind of turned her disadvantage of, you know, of being poor, of having a very traumatic childhood. She turned that into an advantage of having strong emotional intelligence, of being charming and relatable in her daytime TV show, which made her the queen of daytime television in America and kind of gave her the big success that she had.
0: Got it. So how can anyone find and leverage their own unique unfair advantage?
2: That's a really big question, an interesting one. When me and Hassan decided to sit down and write this book together, we felt that there were so many different places where we could start in how you can define what an unfair advantage is for yourself. And it's not just one thing. It's layers of different things that make up what an unfair advantage is. So we created this framework called the MILES framework, and I'm sure Hassan can explain what the MILES framework is now. So, yeah,
1: the the MILES framework is how we kind of codify all the different types of unfair advantages you know all the different categories we thought about the concept and we thought okay so what kind of unfair advantages are there and we kind of broke them down so we've done so much research into this firsthand in the entrepreneurs that we've mentored ourselves we've done hundreds of startups and entrepreneurs which we've advised and mentored just as research for this book really and just in terms of giving back and secondly just from looking at success stories as well you know the big unicorn successes and we've broken them down into this acronym yeah. which is miles Miles stands for money, intelligence and insight, location and luck, education and expertise, and finally, status. So, if you, the first letter of each of those words spells out miles. And so, those are the kind of categories that we put them in. And we've kind of made it into a diagram. It's in our book as well, where they're like pillars and they're built on the foundation of mindset. So, if you'd like, I can go into each one, you know, in a bit more detail just to explain them. So money is quite straightforward. It's the money that you have or that you can raise. So it really helps to have some money starting off because, you know, when you have start a startup, there's nobody paying you a salary, especially if you do it full time. You can do it as a side hustle as well, which we do recommend. If you don't have the savings to be able to kind of support yourself and your family, if you have family that you have to take care of as well. Money is really important. And also there's a, some, some businesses can be a bit more capital intensive than others. Some businesses can take longer to become profitable than others. So it'll take longer to be able to pay yourself. So money is definitely needed. Intelligence and insight is quite an important category as well. Intelligence in the typical type of IQ, but also social and emotional intelligence is is another thing that's really important. Creative intelligence is absolutely massive. And finally, insight. You know, having a deep, unique insight into a problem that you can then solve. You know, it's like finding a gap in the market. It's absolutely essential. So that's I, you know, intelligence and insight. Location and luck is an interesting one because it's all about being in the right place at the right time. You know, it's all about that, taking that opportunity in the right moment. So timing is one of the biggest factors of for a startup is successful or not. If you're too early, then the technology might be too expensive or not ready. The market might not understand how it works. So you have to spend a lot of marketing, educating the market. You know, a lot of your marketing spend will be spent on that. If you're too late, there's too many competitors. So the timing needs to be right. And, that's, you know, that's it requires some luck as well, luck and intuition. And also it's about being in the right place. You know, there's a reason why Silicon Valley is such a big startup hub. There's a reason why London is kind of the biggest startup hub in the, in Europe. There's a reason why, for example, Shenzhen is a big hub, especially for hardware companies in China. So being in the right location matters because you can have access to the talent and to the investors you can have access to the right economic opportunities and financial stability so that's a big factor as well we move on to e for education and expertise which is all about having the right skill set let's say in your founding team to develop your product you know to solve the problem that you found in your, i in your insight so if i is to figure out the problem e for education and expertise is to figure out the solution Right. And then finally we have status, which is massive. It's about how you come across to people. It's how do you come across as credible, trustworthy? Can people have confidence in you? So there's internal and external status. External status is how you come across externally. Internal status is how you feel about yourself, which also affects how you come across externally, you know, your confidence and your self esteem. So that kind of gives you a feeling. Also part of status is your network. So yeah, our book is kind of filled and brimming with examples and case studies, and I even talk about it in my TED Talk as well. So that kind of gives you an idea of what the MILES framework is and the different types of unfair advantages that there are.
0: Got it. This is very interesting. I do have a good few questions about the different pillars of the MILES framework. So what I will do is that I will discuss these one by one, starting with money. Is that okay?
1: Yeah, go for it.
0: Okay. So like, for instance, we come across a lot of startup founders or entrepreneurs or wannabe entrepreneurs who will use money as an excuse that, you know, the reason we can't succeed is we don't have the money and, you know, we can't raise the funds. You know, the investors can't see how brilliant and amazing idea this is. So is that the right approach to go with? Is that the right
2: mindset? I I can take this one, actually, because this is an interesting one. Sure. Money in I grew up quite poor, in a very poor neighborhood, and I never had access to much money at all. And one of the things I learned about money was quite interesting. When I became the, when I was at Just Eat, I was given a marketing budget that was very, very small, a monthly marketing budget. I was a one-man marketing machine at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, The whole department was me in the early days. And then we raised, within a year, we raised 10.5 million pounds from Index Ventures, a VC company. And they gave us, we actually managed to get three and a half million pounds for marketing. And I remember the shift in my mind and how difficult it was for me to shift from having no money to having lots of money for marketing. So you had a new problem. It was crazy because (laughs) I had a new problem and I realized something that actually what happens is that when you have no money, you have to be resourceful and creative. You have to come up with new ideas, new things. And it's that, that limitation of money makes you more creative, makes you more of a hustler to find different ways of doing things. And that's actually quite a good constraint to have sometimes. Because when you did flush with money, guess what we did first thing? We did a TV advert that cost us 250,000 pounds, right? Yeah. Easy, right? Yeah, because then yeah. you can tell, oh, well, it was easy to decide that, but hard to actually do the advert in the end. And so the whole creativity, and I was dead against this. I was like, oh no, you can't. We shouldn't do TV, it's not really. But actually TV made a massive difference for us in terms of building our brand as a internet startup company. So. Having money is very, very valuable when you know how to use it, but having no money is also useful, gives you constraints and makes you think about being more resourceful. So it's like what we call a double-edged sword in that context. Another reason why it's quite interesting is that I personally never had any money. So when I started projects, I had nothing to lose. And now I'm in a different position where I've started projects and I have got something to lose. The mindset changes slightly and it's quite an interesting shift in how you think. So it's important to understand that money is not always the answer.
0: Absolutely. And to share a bit of a personal example, I realized that when I do have the funds to, you know, spend a bit more on our content marketing or something like that, sometimes I incline towards spending more than I should, I'm supposed to spend, right? Like, It is as if I am subconsciously defending my decision of spending that much by saying, you know, okay, we didn't spend a lot previously. So, you know, let's go ahead and spend a lot on this. And later on, I would be like, you know, why did I spend this much? Because this was not necessarily that valuable. So when you give example of spending £250,000 on a TV ad, Do you think that was just luck that you guys succeeded in building a brand through that ad? Or was there, you know, a lot of insight that went through in reaching that decision?
2: There was actually a lot of insight around why we wanted to do that. I think also you have to take into consideration the timing of the market. This was 2008 and this was in the early days. And we were one of the first online takeaway ordering platforms. There were a couple of others out there and we wanted to make sure that we stamped our mark. And also, we were one of the few startup companies in this sector that was quite national, Hmm. meaning across the major cities and towns of the UK, where some of our competitors were only localized into London or certain cities. So we had an ample opportunity to take that brand positioning and position ourselves as the leading takeaway ordering service. And that's why we did it. So there's lots of reasons behind what we did. And there's also lots of learnings around how we actually made some mistakes as well. We had a couple of failures around that. But it, it was interesting that was the, the opening factor. And it wasn't just a TV campaign that did it, side. It was the fact that people now took us seriously. So, all those people I was looking to talk to to do partnerships now returned my calls. All these people I wanted to do um, uh, deals with, they started to take us more seriously. So, the doors started to open up a bit more. So, the branding was not just on the consumer side to get people aware of what we are, who we are, and we exist, but also to remind people in the business world that we are serious player and we are going to take this market.
1: Perfect.
0: That sounds very good. So in terms of status, Hassan mentioned earlier that, you know, there is, you know, an internal status, like what you think about your own self and all that. And I think that that is kind of relevant to my question about the need for self-awareness when, you know, finding your unfair advantage. So how do you, how does one become more self-aware or what are some of the things that you guys do to, you know, take the time to reflect upon things and find your own or your startup's unfair advantage.
1: Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned self-awareness, because that's such a big factor in the book, in our whole mindset and philosophy. It's just so important. It's just that kind of self-knowledge, you know, knowing thyself, so, so important. So you mentioned it in terms of status. So essentially what it takes is to, to know yourself better, to have that self-awareness, is kind of the whole goal of the book, really. It's kind of give you the self-awareness about your own inner self and also about your circumstances and your situation. So one of the biggest ways to get that self-awareness and to find your own unfair advantages is simply to know that they exist, right? You know, it's interesting because the feedback we get about the concept of the unfair advantage is kind of like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I knew that. But Nobody has explained it. I I didn't know it consciously. It was like a muddle in my brain, right? Like we don't tell this to people and they're like, no, no, this is completely wrong. We disagree. That doesn't happen. In fact, what usually happens is they go, yeah, that's so true. That's so true. And nobody's explained it that way before. And that was kind of our goal. It was like to explain a truth that we're all aware of, but we're also, you know, we know it kind of subconsciously and we're we're all a bit fuzzy on it, right? So first of all, is to bring it to the forefront, right? There are no, especially in the West, like people might kind of think that there's, it's a pure meritocracy and that it's like a level playing field that everybody can kind of, yeah, everybody who succeeds is because they fully earned it, right? And then there's the opposite mindset, which is, yeah, it's all like luck and it's all fate and there's nothing you can really do. And they just got lucky. You know, there's this mindset as well, which they have. And it's kind of, you have to find that midway point and to understand that the unfair advantages exist. So that's step number one, is just to know that they exist and learn about them. Step number two is to know the kind of categories that they fall into, which we've kind of broken down with the miles framework. And just knowing that and looking at examples that we go through, you can kind of look at your own life and your own circumstances and kind of think, okay, I think I've got this one, I'm strong in this area, but I'm weaker maybe in, um, maybe I'm strong in insight and intelligence, but I'm weaker in my expertise side. I don't really know how to build a solution to solve the problem. I don't really have much money to spend on it, but I can kind of survive a few months maybe without a salary. You know, you can kind of rate where you're at and just bear in mind as well, some people often ask us, "Is do I need to have all the unfair advantages to succeed? The answer is no. You don't need all of them. What you can do is partner up with a co-founder or have your early employees or early mentors kind of plug in the gaps, you know, give you those complementary unfair advantages that you that you don't have. So yeah, the self awareness comes from knowing it and kind of reflecting on your own life and just kind of being more aware of how it works. Yeah, I think um, uh,
2: status is quite an interesting one, and uh, Hassan is absolutely right. Being aware of it, it's being self awareness is one of the most critical components of knowing who you are and how to work on your strengths and double down on your strengths. You know, I went through school being uh, tested on subjects. And I did okay at school actually, but there were, certain other, there were certain subjects which I didn't do very well at. And I realized that the teachers were like, right, you know, you're not very good at this and don't even think about going into Korea career into this area, like English. And we've written a book. It's funny, right? And what I found was that when we go through this system, everyone keeps telling you what you're not good at, but what you're good at is like a tick. Yeah, well done, you've done that, that's fine. But what you're not good at is like, well, you need to improve that, you need to change that, you need to improve that. And then I realized as I went through my entrepreneurial career that actually I'm good at certain things and not so good at other things. And that was only self-awareness that I started to get later in my life. Whereas at school, you have to try and be good at everything and average yourself out. Whereas as an entrepreneur, I realized that you have to be very good at certain things and have a spike in terms of, if you look at it as a graph, in certain type of traits that will make you a really strong entrepreneur, but find people who can fill the other gaps for you. Find people who can actually help you with the things that you're weak at. So the whole idea of the miles framework is to allow you to audit yourself, to see who you are, but also to use it to audit other people so you can see how what their strengths are and how they fit into your team. Because everything is done in a team. It's not a single-handed thing. And that's the other thing I realize in life. It's not just a one-man band. You have to have a team that helps you achieve success. And being self-aware allows you to fit into the right team. And so all my life I've been told this, that, you can't do this, you can't do that. And then Gained through self awareness, I realized that I do have strengths actually, and everybody has them. You know, everyone is unique. Everyone has a special talent. The whole idea of this Miles framework is to show people that you are special, you are unique, and you're in this world with a unique talent and a set of unfair advantages that you can take advantage of to leverage. And so when I came to London, I started to look around me and I was like, oh my God, everyone's so rich. They're doing so well. I'm from, a, I don't know how it works here. And I start to have this thing called, should I even be here? Am I even allowed to be here? And later realized this is called imposter syndrome. And then I realized being an imposter, it felt like, why am I here? Why should I even be here? So believing in myself and having self-confidence was another area of self-awareness. But actually, no, I have the right to be here. I have the skills, the expertise, I have the knowledge. I am the, in the right place. I just need to make it the right place. And sometimes people go through life and say, I shouldn't really be here. I shouldn't really been doing this. And that's becoming self-aware of who you are and what you're good at and what you're not good at. and then. Eventually, as this imposter syndrome, and I still have it now, actually, sometimes I'm I'm on stage and I'm like, should I even really be here? Who am I to be telling all these hundreds of people in this crowd how to do marketing? And then it kicks in again to say that, actually, I need to tell better stories in my own mind. Hmm. So the status, the external status is great. Yes, you've been part of startups, an IPO, you've written a book, your authors, that's great. But the internal status is actually, what do I tell? What stories do I tell myself in my own mind? who am I really? How do I see the story of my own life? And then utilizing that to create authenticity in who you are and realizing that actually you're unique and you're your authentic self. And that part of my self-awareness has been the biggest enlightening moment for me. And I'm still learning a lot more about myself.
0: But do you think that like this inner doubt or this conversation with yourself where you are feeling like an imposter, do you think that it has also to do when sometimes inadvertently we end up comparing ourselves with someone else and we see just external status, right? We don't know what demons they have or what problems they're going through. So do you think that it's better to just, you know, focus on trying to be better than what we were yesterday or a week ago or something?
2: Absolutely. So when I start to get context of my own personal life journey and Hassan got his context of his own personal life journey, we realize that there are moments in life that we've had some really Brilliant moments, and there are moments in life which have not been so great. But what we are comparing ourselves to is our previous self. And the way I see it is that I was born in the inner city of Birmingham, and I've come from a small town called Small Heath. If any of you are Peaky Blinders fans, you'll know where that area is. But a small town in Small Leith, and I've come to London, and I've got involved with the largest tech IPO in the last ten years. How is that possible? What's that journey? And so. And I know other people can be also part of that journey and they have been, but they have to compare themselves to who they were yesterday, like you said.
0: Hmm. And also another thing, one thing that I notice quite often, and I would love to know what you both think about it, is that a lot of times someone will have the, you know, the innate talent, something that they are born with, but when they don't do very good with that talent. They assume that they can never be so good at it, that it will become a professional skill, something that they can use to have a successful life. So, you know, the journey from talent to skill is what I'm talking about. Like you may have the talent, but you still have to work on it and through education or expertise and get to the level where, you know, I don't know, after 10,000 hours or something like that, where you become the expert and you have the skill,
1: the polished skill, right? Absolutely. This is so essential. So yeah, the, the concept of talent is very interesting. For me, in my personal life, it really took me a long time. It took me most of my twenties just trying to figure out what is my talent? What am I? What's my main strength? And it takes time. So if you're young and listening to this podcast and you're like, Oh, I don't know what my talent is. Don't worry. It takes time to figure out sometimes. You know, not everybody knows straight away what they're really good at. The best way to figure it out is sort of empirically, meaning, In the field, by actually doing stuff in the real world, you can kind of figure out what you're good at, what you like, which is also important. It's also important to kind of enjoy it. And oftentimes they go together. If you're good at something and you start building the skill set, you start to enjoy it, right? So you're asking about what do you do with a talent that you lose faith in or you don't think is good enough, right? I think it's a case of, first of all, you've got to keep working at it. Like you said, the 10,000 hours rule spoken about often enough, you know, hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. There's that kind of quote. It's definitely true. In most cases, there are some complete outliers who you see they really don't work much at something, but they're just amazing at it. There are those, but let's not keep comparing ourselves to them. And just like you said, then that's when you can have that comparison syndrome, you know, that idea of like, oh, no, I'm not as good as this person. And and ultimately, you're really, you're, you're just comparing yourself to an image that, that that person or the media has projected out into the world, right? It's not really you. Don't know the inner demons that they have, just like what you said, like Sai. it can go quite deep. It can go quite deep. So this is that's one of the reasons that why we focus on the idea of gratitude, right? It's really important. So one of the things that we really Ash and I have thought about this so long. That's one of the reasons it took us longer to write this book is we were like, we don't want to write a book where somebody's going to think, oh. Just because I don't have unfair advantages, then that means I'm not gonna succeed. That's not how it works. Everybody has unfair advantages and we wanted to make sure we communicate that clearly in the book. So the idea is that if you have, you need to have the mindset of gratitude. When you look, you need to focus on what you have going for you, not what you don't have, because you'll be surprised to see how many things you do have going
0: for you. Yeah, so instead of focusing on the weaknesses, focus on your strengths, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Just as Ash spoke about, you know, in school, they tell you, oh, you need to improve in this area where you're weakest. But, you know, in the real world, in business and in your career, you don't should focus on your weaknesses. In the most in most cases, you should focus more on your strengths and delegate and work in a team to people who have your weakness as their strength, right? And that's kind of the myth that's been kind of given in society. Even the show like The Apprentice, right? We have that in the UK as well. And they kind of give this mindset where to be an entrepreneur, you have to be good at everything. No, you don't. You just need to be really good at a few things and then have in your team or with your business partners or co-founders, the strengths that you're missing. Simple, right? So it's the case of focusing more on that. And in terms of uncovering your talents, it's just a case of trying different things, working on different things, getting the feedback, increasing your self-awareness, ask your friends and colleagues, what am I good at? you know, try and find what comes naturally to you. You don't even think it's like, amazing, like it's a talent, you think it's normal. But other people tell you, wow, that's really hard. I can't do that. That's kind of gives you the clue of where your talent. lies. Yeah.
2: And also, it depends as a, I think, as we get older, as adults, we get this curiosity knocked out of us. And as an entrepreneur, being curious is very important. As a child, you're very curious. And you always want to learn new things. And it's, Usually what you love as a child that you're really is your, kind of your natural talent when you're actually an adult. So you might be great at sports and you might be talented in sports, but actually now you have a job and get a mortgage and have two kids and it becomes like, oh, well, you lose that talent for that sport that you had and you never had the opportunity. And some people do get the opportunity to fulfill that talent. And the other part of talent is also to realize that as an entrepreneur, you don't have to be the most talented person. Your job as an entrepreneur is to get the right talented people around you to fulfill your vision. And there's a new trend. And I don't know if it's a trend. I think as an entrepreneur, you need to have a lot more generalistic skills to become an entrepreneur than just having a super talent in something, because that by itself is not going to create the vision that you want to fulfill, because there's so many moving parts to a business and a startup. So having generalistic skills are becoming more, more important, but also having other skills which are not just hard skills, which we call like, you know, programming, coding, music, you got to have what the other side of it is skills, people call them soft skills but i call them human skills the ability to work in teams emotional intelligence the ability to um, uh, communicate the ability to work in a team effort for example these skills are becoming more and more important than just having a super talent because i know and i've always run with this philosophy is that if i have a team and i can find someone in my team find someone to hire and he's super talented or she's super talented but they've got a bad attitude i won't hire them they'll make the harmony in the team network. So talent by itself is great, but having the ability to have other skills are also very important. But knowing what you're good at is a good thing. And I think sometimes we get it knocked out of us in British schools, it's very much like, well, you don't really talk much about it in America. It's like, yes, I'm the best at this. They have such so much more (laughs) different way of looking at it. And in Asian culture and my background, it's very much like you don't say anything you respect the elders, you just, just shut up, stay in the corner and just be quiet, don't even start a debate on something, don't even think. <laughs> and that's how it my life is to be when I go to my cousin's houses or a wedding or somewhere. The first thing my dad used to say to me is, don't say a word. Because if I sat down with an uncle, and an uncle turned around and said that, oh, you need to have a degree to succeed, I was the first one to say, no, you don't. And obviously that would cause a banter. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's funny that you bring that up. And it, it's so funny that in our culture, like, I mean, your parents were from Pakistan, and I'm from Pakistan, I'm based here. And here, if you ask a question, or you disagree with an elder, whether it's a parent or an uncle or a teacher at school, it's automatically interpreted as being rude, when it's not meant to be that way it's it's just you know an exchange of ideas and it's uh, creative thinking which is strongly discouraged
2: yeah sadly sadly so, uh, so you know I, I, mean, I get my daughter to ask me questions all the time and her whys keep going on and on and on until I have to start going to Wikipedia or calling Hassan in this case and finding out <laughs> why is it has why is it like this and because you need to get that curiosity and that's what curiosity is and that's what it, it drives you to think and learn because age, might not have, you might not have as much experience, but you can still be wise, right? Even if you're young. And so these people confuse this kind of thing that you gotta be old to be wise. Not necessarily. I've seen some older people who have like done stuff. and I'm like, that's not really a good move that they've made. And I'm actually younger, right? Uh, at the, and at the same time, it works the opposite way around as well. Sometimes younger people say, you're not wise yet. And you find someone who's older, but age has got nothing to do with it. It's wisdom and experience and sharing that and learning from each other. And also the times are changing fast things are changing fast. We have to be more agile. You know, The World Economic Reports are saying that it's about agility. It's about changing things and learning new things faster. So your talents that you might have found needs to be more of an inherent talent rather than a talent for a tool. It should be a skill that you've defined, a skill set so you know how to think in numbers, algorithms, You, you got a logical brain. Those are the things that then you can accentuate into other tools and other things. Skills which are like evergreen, they'll last forever, no matter what happens in the world where some people say they're talented at a certain thing, and it might just be like, I'm talented at using Microsoft Office. That's just a tool, and that's great, but then you need to be talented at writing, for example, or you need to be talented at um, learning how to create models in Excel rather than Excel itself. And sometimes people confuse the difference, and I think that's why it's hard to define what your talent is, and it's going back to root causes. And Like for I know over time, that the best ways to learn about your talent is to also ask other people around you who you work with, because they'll just say to you, oh, how do you come up with so many ideas? And I was like, oh, I don't know, right? And then it's like, okay, so then you, get, you understand that you're creative, you have a creative mindset, and some people don't have that, which is fine, but then you get to say, okay, that's one of my talents. I have this ability to connect dots in different locations in different ways quickly. Hashtag on the other side is an amazing constructor, logical brain and how to deconstruct things, and reconstruct them and communicate them in a in a way that makes total sense to a newbie. Whereas I will explain an idea and it'll be like quite complicated until Hassan will come and say, you have to break this down a bit more. And he has that unique knack and he doesn't believe in it because I have to tell him all the time that he does <laughs> and he does now, but he has this unique ability to communicate ideas in such a way that anybody can pick it up. And on top of that, he's a humble guy and has empathy, it makes a massive difference.
0: Yeah. So this actually is connected to the next question that I have. Have you guys heard of, you know, books like Traction by Gino Wickman or uh, The E-Myth Revisited? Yes. Yeah. So in Traction, Gino Wickman talks about having two types of leaders at the top of the accountability chart of an organization, right? So he mentions that there has to be a visionary who, you know, may probably someone like Ash, who has, you know, tons of ideas coming at the speed of light and, you know, maybe 99% of them are not viable or applicable at the current moment, but the one which are good can, you know, make the business grow by 10x, right? And then there is the integrator who is like the, you know, the operations guy. So the chief operating officer or someone who is, you know, interacting with the customers and maybe the internal teams and managers and making sure that, you know, like you said, deconstructing a complicated concept and making sure that, the team is working on the right idea at the right time and in the right manner. So I would love to know if you guys have experienced the same in some of the other startups that you guys have set up because I know that Ash has, for instance, had more than one exits, I believe, including the laundry startup that he has had in Dubai.
2: So I would love to know your thoughts on that, both Ash and Hassan. Uh, Hassan, I think you could talk about the the three three types of people that we talk about in startup. That'd be quite interesting.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that. I actually haven't read that book, Traction, but I have amazing. Yeah, I'll I'll check it out. I've read The e Revisited, which is a great book. read it quite a few years ago. Yeah, they're definitely, again, it's all about focusing on your strengths. So even if you're good at something, if your co-founder is even better, they should probably do it, right? So it's like, a, yeah, it's that There's we we talk about this in the book as well in terms of there's different types of founders. And every kind of co-founding team sort of needs a combination of sort of three personas that we, we describe. There's the visionary, there's the commercial founder, and there's the technical founder. And sometimes that's all rolled up into one person, a solo founder, which is quite rare, but it can happen sometimes. But more often than not, it's two or three people. So the visionary and the commercial person could be the same person. Such as in the case of Steve Jobs. Yeah. He's the visionary and the commercial guy, I would say. And then the technical guy is Steve Wozniak, his co founder.
0: Who's kind of behind the scenes, but the main technical expert in a sense, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I guess once you grow bigger, you can have a team and it gets even more complicated than that. I think there's designer that designed most of the iconic Apple product critic guy as well. Or there's the example of, for Microsoft, you can have the technical guy also be the visionary guy, such as Bill Gates. And then you, they, for them, I think the commercial one was, uh, his name's Paul Allen, who's passed away recently, I think. So at the time it was.
0: Yeah, I think was, it was Paul Allen. But he was
1: also the technical guy, right? So it, it's not, you know, it's not necessarily completely clear cut. But yeah, it's often the case that when we look at startups and we're kind of analyzing and evaluating them, we do want to see, okay, who's the visionary here? Who's the kind of communicator and commercial person that's going to be the one sort of pitching the vision and talking about the commercials and the monetizing and partnering? And who's going to be the one to actually create the product? For WhatsApp, Jan Kuhn was the technical and visionary. And Brian Acton, his co-founder, was sort of more the commercial and communicator, I would say. So for him, he was the one who raised the initial set of investments that they needed. So yeah, you can always kind of see this sort of pattern of those different personas.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. And yeah, I look forward to reading the book when it's published, The Unfair Advantage in January, so I can go through how you guys explain these three types of startup founder, the visionary, the commercial guy, and the tech expert. Ash, did you want to say something? Please go on.
2: Yeah, so I mean, that's exactly right with what Hassan's mentioned, these kind of two or three different types of people. So the way we split it up, but there's a commercial person, there's a technical person. And the way I want to put another spin on it, there's also a person that's going to be the catalyst. And the catalyst is somebody who really creates distribution and opportunity to grow the startup or grow the business. I think a lot of people, you might be a visionary and you might be someone who can make the product, but then who's going to actually do the marketing and the growth side of it. And you need a catalyst. And that catalyst could be someone who might have a partnership opportunity with a big company and you get distribution, for example. Right. Isn't
0: that the same as the commercial guy, the, no, it's the not.
2: commercial slash? No, it's not. The commercial person's responsibility is to commercialize the business and create, commercialize the business, sort of the business model, the revenue stream thinking. As in monetizing? Monetizing, yeah, monetizing, thinking about product development, monetizing, thinking about the customers. But then to get to route to market, you need to have the ability to now to go next step is actually how do you now do the marketing and sales? Now, Generally, what happens is that the catalyst also sits in the commercial person. If you've got both of them, that's great. But if you haven't, then you need someone who can create the catalyst, who can create the movement to market. So give you an example. One of my colleagues is running a startup in the health tech industry. He's a technical person, Salesforce expert, technical expert. They are building a platform for clinical trials. On the commercial side, they've got somebody who works in clinical trials. On the catalyst side, They've got three doctors who are already working with companies in the clinical trials industry so they can use the platform. So, those are the technical experts, right? Correct. But they're also the catalysts as well because they're working in the, they're giving the opportunity to get the platform into the clinical trials industry, in the pharma industry. But on top of that, they're doctors. So, they're doctors with reputation and they can go and convince other doctors and other pharma companies to implement this platform for clinical trials. Now, the commercial person is just commercial. He might not be a doctor, but the doctor is the one that's going to create a catalysm in the organization because they trust the doctor more and they're doing the clinical trials, but it links together.
0: Yeah, yeah. And also when, you know, someone like a doctor or someone else who has access to a community that can also act as a catalyst, right? In terms of bringing in a lot of users and whatnot. Yeah,
2: yeah. Absolutely. And the users in this case are pharma companies and the pharma companies will listen to a doctor more likely than a commercial guy coming in saying, right, these are the cells, this is how it works. It's not going to work, right? So there's a balance between it. Sometimes you might have a commercial person who's also a doctor. That makes sense as well. So you can get that balance of hybrid skills. You know, the key is to have generalist hybrid skills in the early days. But as you start to go out, think about how you're going to get to market. One of the first things I talk about in the book is actually, I think that most startups fail, not because they can't build a product. It's because they can't get to market. And that's where the catalyst comes in. That's where the third person or the founding team need to have a route to market and have a thought through this opportunity of traction. How can you get traction?
0: Absolutely. So what was the writing process like? How much time did it take to write the unfair advantage?
1: Yeah, it's a difficult one. It's difficult to know when, you're, when you've are when you started thinking about the concept, right? When you're developing the concept. So there's different ways I can answer this question, right? But one thing to say is that It's kind of been three years of thinking specifically about the concept, testing it out, speaking on stage, researching it into, researching it by talking to founders, mentoring, advising loads of them. But also, you know, in another sense, it's been like kind of combined 25 years of experience of me and Ash kind of in our own entrepreneurial journeys, right? So you can kind of go even further upstream than that.
2: So both of us are practitioners and entrepreneurs. And it was a challenge initially to sit down and say, right, we need to write this book. But the good news was that both Hassan and I have been invited all over the world to speak about our stories and our entrepreneurial journeys. And we've been able to share some of the content of the book on stage. And we could see what type of content people really liked and enjoyed and which content they felt a bit was difficult to understand. That allowed us to get together our thoughts and collect them together and think about how we're going to structure this book. And the book's been in the making for like probably five years. In the last three and a half years, Hassan and I have sat down and really tried to structure the book. But also on top of that, it's not just about our stories. Hassan has gone away and done some huge amount of research into other startups. And we've worked together on trying to give you examples from other startups, which you can actually see yourself like Airbnb and Spanx and Oprah Winfrey and people in the industry that you understand and seen to see where their unfair advantages are as well.
1: Yeah. And maybe you of writing specifically, just to answer that, side because we haven't touched on that. It was actually really intense. So the actual writing time. So I don't know if you noticed from Ash's explanation there, we've used startup principles, lean startup principles.
0: That's what I was about to talk about next. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's very interesting because I could see, I believe I I have had seen or I heard someone mentioning that Ash was even testing the book cover on Instagram and elsewhere, right? So, I mean, the startup philosophy of testing ideas before going ahead with, you know, final solution or a final product, I think I can see that you guys have tested not just the book cover or book title, but also the various ideas that are within the book. As you guys mentioned that you guys, you know, go ahead and discuss some of these ideas on different, you know, platforms and during your speaking gigs. So... Was that an intentional effort to try to test all of this in a sort of a startup functionality in a startup manner?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, with all our experience of working with businesses, of starting our own businesses, of seeing all these pitches and startups, we know the biggest problem and we see all the time, the biggest problem is to be theoretical in your own brain and just think of things isolated without any real world feedback, you know, market feedback the biggest problem you know you we meet all these developers who have sat there creating this crazy complicated product and spent hundreds if not, <laughs> not over that hours of working on it and then it's like well, no one wants it you're not solving the real problem right so yeah you need to try and do your best to produce
2: a product or a service that people want and that's where fundamentally a lot of people go wrong and so the iteration process is really important and the patience as well You know, people want to write a book in two months and three months and write it, I'll finish off and that's it done. It doesn't happen like that. If you want to create a concept, an idea that lives in people and is a perennial idea and continues, then you need to really think through everything around your concept and how it makes sense. And that takes time. And a lot of good things take time. The best recipes have come through generations of people. The best books take time to develop. And and we wanted to create not just another knockoff startup book, we wanted to create a perennial seller, a book that you can keep and hold and pass on to your children and your ch- uh, children's children to say, this is something which we learned about the unfair advantage concept, how you can apply it to your life and how it gives you a way to look at the world. And the whole idea was was iteration, really was iteration. And you know, we've now got a publisher and we actually had three publishers fighting for the book, which was great and unusual for us. And that only really happened because we had iteration. I think if we'd said, we want to sat down and we want three publishers and we want this, we want that. That will never have happened. But because of the fact that we were iterative and as we went along, we made progress and we had momentum and it felt good and we wanted to continue doing it. And we had the, the grit and perseverance. I mean, the late nights that Hassan spent on the book and myself, we, it's just unbelievable. We had so many late nights. and On top of that, we're both entrepreneurs. We're both running companies. So it was a struggle, but we managed to do it and we managed to set aside time to do it as well. We even traveled together. We were in Indonesia once and we were sitting in the in the lobby of a hotel, Casanda Hotel that do amazing lattes if you get a chance, by the way. Sat down and said, right, let's get some of this book written up because it was the only time we'd be away from all our companies and businesses and our phones semi-switched off. It's still on WhatsApp, yeah. but switched off enough to not be able to worry about. Work. So having that time is really, you need the time to make something really good. Absolutely. And I think the point
0: both of you made about, you know, going back to the listeners or the users or the the buyers of your product, whatever that may be, and getting their feedback on those initial versions is very important. And I think a lot of the times, I mean, it connects to, it relates to what we earlier discussed about the mindset as well, because I think that a lot of the time when we don't ask questions from the customers or get their feedback is because we want to be in our own shells. And we think that, you know, sitting all alone in a dark room and working a thousand hours on an app is better than, you know, asking some hard questions. And then if they don't like it, then they are stupid, not us, you know. Do you understand what I'm talking about here?
2: Yeah, no, you know, totally understand. I think when you're writing a book, though, Hassan can uh, tell you a bit more about it. There is a time when you just have to sit down and knuckle down take the noise away and focus. I think there's time there, but we went through so much iteration process. We knew what we really wanted. And then we like, we had a, what we call a pre-product market fit. We looked at our book as a product. We even created a lean version of our book, two, three chapters of our book and handed it out to people so they can read it to get feedback.
0: You had gifted that to me as well. And it was such an interesting read that I was able to finish it in one sitting. I believe I told you that, right? When you visited Pakistan last year, yeah, it was very interesting.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And that was the whole intention behind it. But it's also the intention of creating something and getting to something to market quickly than waiting for another three years and saying, well, we'll wait for another. It was to get that feeling and get that also the inspiration as well. And both of us were inspired by the feedback that we had from that initial lean version of our book.
0: Yeah, and to be honest, you know, at that time, I... I couldn't really understand very well why I was reading not the full book, but a, a linear version of the book. But now that you explain it, you know, how you were basically testing your ideas and getting initial feedback and all that. This makes complete sense. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We literally, we really did treat it as a product, like a tech company. If you think about like, the fact that it was easy to read, that was intentional. We, we literally used UX principles to think, okay, how are we going to feel for the reader at this point? How are we going to format it? How are we going to structure it? And we have yeah. put a lot of effort and thought into it,
2: you know. The other thing was also, it served a purpose, right? So your MVP, your minimum viable product should serve a purpose and get some customers in. And so one of our purposes also as part of writing a book and creating something and testing the content out was the fact that we could use the book as a way to get more speaking opportunities. So instead of giving my business card to people or Hassan giving his business card, we both just give our book out and say, hey, just read this small version of our book and you get a better idea of who we are. And if you'd like us to come and speak, we'll come and speak. So it became what we call a very expensive business card <laughs> at the time. But it was yeah. a way of getting back onto the speaking stage and a way of getting, testing more of our content. And people were like, where's the full book? Where's the full book? Well, it's not a full book, but at least you read 45 minutes, an hour of it, you know? <laughs>
0: And I I love that idea. I mean, sure, it was a very expensive business card, but then again, unlike, um, you know, business cards, it doesn't get lost and you keep it close to you and it makes an impact and it results in, I believe, more positive results for you guys as well, right?
2: Yeah, it was an interesting, very interesting journey. I mean, if there's anyone ever thinking of writing a book and the process of getting published, we're planning on doing a book workshop soon. It's only going to be available in London, but It's something which a lot of people have been asking us about. And as first-time authors, we've been gobsmacked with the response that we've had. And even our publishers are really pleasantly surprised with the way we've been able to work with them and how excited they are about the book and so many new things which are happening right now behind the scenes. We can't talk about now, but when the book comes out, you will hear about them. It's really exciting times. And it's been a fun, but very, very tough journey.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That sounds very interesting. And I will surely be ordering the book like I said earlier, and I will make sure that we include links to your LinkedIn profiles, Twitter profiles, the Unfair Advantage website and links to the Amazon Marketplace and whatnot where the users can buy the book. Is there any final words of wisdom that any of you want to share before we conclude this episode?
1: Mm, Good question. Ash, do you want to go first?
2: Look, I started in the middle of inner city and I've come to, in my career, to be able to write a book and work on multiple startups. You have to believe in yourself, have the self-confidence, read, educate yourself. The more you learn, the future will rely on people who are not the know-it-alls, but the learn-it-alls. Perfect.
0: Hassan, anything from you?
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, I got such great, as you might have seen, side so got such great feedback. I was really humbled about the feedback I got for my TED Talk. Which was essentially the concepts of the book explained. And why I ended and what really had impact that I got from people. What I ended that TED talk with is the fact that, you know, I never imagined that I would one day, you know, be on stage at TED and be giving a TED talk, right? But here I am. I never thought that one day I would have a published book with a traditional publisher and gonna be in all the bookshops in the UK and around the world, you know, we're already getting translated to other languages. I never thought that would happen, but here I am. And, you know, it's, it's a case, and I never thought I'd be an entrepreneur, you know, I never thought that I'd have my own business. If you'd spoken to me about that when I was younger, I'd be like, you know, I wouldn't believe you. I wouldn't think that's something that I was going to do. So it's, I think it's a case of, we overestimate what we can achieve in a year, but we underestimate what we can achieve in a decade. So it's really essential that you find, you know, what is your unfair advantage and kind of work on that and think about that question. And make sure your life trajectory, whether it's career or business or freelancing or whatever it might be, is kind of pointed in that right direction to kind of double down on your strengths and your circumstances.
0: Absolutely. We will make sure that we include links of your TED Talk, Hassan's TED Talk, and of course, Ash's TED Talk as well. Thank you so much, both of you, and wish you good luck on the book workshop and the book launch.
1: Thank you for listening. For show notes and other resources, please refer to the description of the show.